The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Let me have that a minute. <coughs> CO2. Hey, that's it. It's cold. That's why it didn't come in the icebox after it said, can't stand cold. You got any more of these things? No. Huh? running out the phone hey Dave hey Dave hey Dave anybody on the phone hey Dave Dave can you hear me CO2 Phil Phil you got any CO2 extinguishers not many some soda acid well get the CO2s out here and start hitting around those cellar windows what just do it Phil and have your men check these buildings for fire extinguishers but only the CO2 kind Bring back everyone you can get your hands on and hurry! All right, okay. Hey, maybe we can help. Let's get some of the guys together, huh? Okay. Lieutenant, I know where there are 20 extinguishers of that type. Good, where? At the high school. Who can go with me? Hey, right here, Mr. Martin. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go! Okay, hey, let's go. I'll be here, Mr. Martin. Hey, Dave! <coughs> Dave! Dave! CO2 fire extinguishers! Dave, can you hear me? CO2! Our power's still out, so we can't do much in the way of refrigeration. We think we've got it under control, but we won't rest easy until it's frozen solid. Now... No. No, it's too big for that, and it's impossible to cut it. No, sir, a bomb would spread it all over the country. Look, this thing has killed probably 40 or 50 people since last night. In a few hours, we're going to have the sun overhead. I think you should send us the biggest transport plane you have. And take this thing up to the Arctic or somewhere and drop it where it'll never thaw out. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 25th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. To black and white under the clothes, everything will be alright. You know, I couldn't help but note the irony of CO2 being the thing that saves the world from the blob <laughs> in our opener. In the movie of the same name that starred Steve McQueen, they used the CO2 to freeze the blob and decided to drop it in the Arctic where it would never thaw out. Talk about a politically incorrect movie, which actually was not a bad movie considering the genre. Welcome to our show today, where you can follow us on Twitter, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You know, CO2 has become a political symbol, really a symbol of anti-capitalism and freedom, although it's being sold as an environmental thing. The sheer want and hatred of freedom and capitalism continues unabated and can be found in a discussion of almost any political topic or conversation, uh, especially the stuff you see in the, in the media. And although my chosen topics today, based on several news items and editorials I've run across lately, are ostensibly about poverty, climate change, and the human, get this, the need to be good, at least that's what all the headlines led me to believe. What they were really all about were attacks on freedom, capitalism, and self-interest, individualism. So 
These are the kinds of deceptions and misdirections, and of course along with the use of meaningless terms and words used to deceive and misdirect, that just get my blood boiling. So pardon me, I'm going to do my best to try and remain calm as possible throughout today's show, because when I read some of this, it, it, just, it just turns me beet red. I kid you not, it's horrible. And of course, uh, we can my, for my first item here, this was printed June 6th in the Free Press, and again we find Glenn Pearson... Uh, continually writing these, this, the, you know, disguised calls for wealth redistribution, for robbing Peter to pay Paul without actually saying so. And he refers in his June 6th editorial in the Free Press to the Governor General's Canadian Leadership Conference study group that apparently was in London during that week, consisted of 17 delegates whom he called mid-career professionals, and he says their credentials are Im- impressive including participation in medicine, Aboriginal governance, social services, foundation leadership, the energy sector, and later labor leadership, to name a few. Accompanied by a military liaison officer, they formed a formidable force. But their collective experience meant they couldn't be easily fooled or schmoozed. And what they were hearing, but, but what they were hearing wasn't quite jibing with what they witnessed or knew from their own experience. To be sure, they toured some remarkable places of growth and innovation, including First Nations communities, etc., etc. They go through all this. But then there were the governance problems. It was becoming increasingly clear to them that Canadian democracy is under great stress, where the retreat of governments from historic obligations has produced a tearing in the Canadian social fabric that was threatening much of what had been part of our great success as a nation in the past. So what's going on, asked the team's blog, written by Lara Cook halfway through the journey. If we as a nation are getting better at generating wealth, why are more people hungry? This is a big question, and I'm sorry to say I don't have a good answer for it. This became the essence of the team's problem. The deeper they got into their collective journey, how can a country so deep in wealth, education, innovation, and goodwill nevertheless tolerate increasing poverty, aboriginal injustice, the destruction of the environment, and outright political dysfunction. They were troubled, as many citizens are, that all the wealth and success have yet to solve those problems that gnaw away at our national sense of purpose and our commitment to a workable social equilibrium. What would it take to get through to the leaders that the status quo just isn't cutting it anymore. Our prosperity might be undermined by our problems, he concludes. Well, that's the gist of the article. And, you know, given the credentials of those attending this leadership conference group, as described by Pearson, it's kind of clear (laughs) that they're all sort of on the left, wouldn't we say? On the left of the ideological page. They're areas of expertise from Aboriginal governance, social services, the energy sector, and labor, clearly identifies, I think, the very services and functions in the country that are dysfunctional. And, you know, I, just, I was wondering, too, what he meant. What, what does participation in medicine mean as a credential? Does that mean that the person is a doctor? I mean, would you call a doctor someone who participates in medicine? I'm not sure. A nurse? A technician? A patient, maybe? I mean, they participate in that medicine or just some state panelist who talks about medicine when he goes on the road. That was not really made clear. But a lot of things were left unclear, and that's sort of what I'm continuing to address. It was, I started this last week as well. I was actually meaning to get to this item last week. And 
he talks about the status quo. Well, yeah, we all know what that is, don't we? But, but what, what is it exactly he's referring to? And to what specific problems? Now, on the status issue, he referred to our country as being a country so deep in wealth. Well, that's a nice status to have if we've got all this wealth. But I have to assume the status he wants us to think about that he's talking that he's talking about is some kind of you know capitalism and industry creating all this wealth, but which isn't using it to create quote unquote equilibrium, or maybe just wealthier retirees and people who have savings and who aren't using their assets to create this equilibrium. And here's another meaningless term: a workable social equilibrium. I mean, just what is that? Is that some sort of social equality that does not now exist? Is he talking about rights, about economic equality? Exactly what? He, he never really says. It's all this, this funny, fuzzy, fuzzy left-wing talk that we always see. And on the problems, he's identified them as increasing poverty, aboriginal injustice, destruction of the environment, and political dysfunction. But here's the catch. The undesirable condition or conditions that Pearson is describing are not the consequences of capitalism or industry, but of the implementation of the very political ideology that he's been preaching for years. He's not dealing with a capitalist or industrial status quo, at least in his terms of reference, but with instead a statist quo that has resulted because of our political drift towards more socialism and fascism, his expressed social and political ideals, and less of free markets. Why are there so many poor and unemployed amidst contrasting wealth and production? Is that a natural state? I don't think so. But we can look at a lot of causes, and the causes you'll find are the things that the social activists advocate. You know, how about minimum wages? Killing jobs. How about wealth redistribution for welfare, you know, for a welfare state that kills the capital necessary to create productive jobs? How about those labor and business monopolies that prevent competition and keep people out of work who could otherwise be employed or and keep the poor unemployed? How about those high taxes that kill just about everything they touch? How about those employee regulations and costs from employment insurance to CPP to pensions? How about inflation itself? How about government deficits and debt? And of course, green-priced electricity rates. Just check those countries and jurisdictions with the greatest degree of the kind of problems Pearson has tried to describe, and you'll discover that it's, political I- it's a political ideology that is at the root of all the problems, and it's one that nobody wants to talk about. And that's because few are even able to discuss it rationally because the very words and concepts they need to have such a discussion have been entirely missing from the debate, and not just accidentally, I think, on purpose. And, you know, it's funny. I've been in politics now since 1984 uh, here in Ontario, and that was when the days when Progressive Conservative Party leader Bill Davis was Premier of Ontario. He, He was here from 71 to 85. And, you know... Very little has changed in the political direction Ontario has been forced to take. Since then, the, quote, progressive, and quote, disease of more state control and less freedom has merely progressed, 
at an increasing pace. Ontario, for example, is now simply in the later stages of, of a tragic direction adopted by the progressive politicians of all parties. The symptoms of this progressive view of government include, but are not limited to, record high deficits and deficits that are still increasing, the high electricity rates, declining education standards delivered by regularly striking teachers, increased health care rationing along with increased costs, soaring auto insurance rates, declining benefits, higher taxes, more labor controls, and on and on. It just doesn't stop. All of these things contribute to the dysfunction of our democracy and of governance itself. And the negative symptoms associated with these issues have been consciously misrepresented by those who have created these problems in the first place as being caused by a lack of even more state oversight and control. Consequently, it's not you know, it's impossible not to be aware that Ontario continues going in the wrong direction. What Pearson, a former liberal MP, is really trying to say in his editorial is this, uh, make the rich pay, or maybe simply destroy the rich and the ability of anyone else to become rich, honestly at least, without government subsidies. Make everyone economically equal. You know, this is a form of Marxism. Now, one thing Pearson admits, about both himself and all the experts is that they don't have any of the answers to the problems, nor do they appear to understand the cause. But they sure are certain of their anti-capitalistic sentiments and seem to see no connection between their ideas and the consequences of those ideas. You can't cure poverty by robbing Peter to pay Paul. You can't cure poverty by raising minimum wages. You can't cure poverty by monopolizing labor or by raising taxes or by putting up trade barriers or by anything called government job creation. That's not a poverty solution. All of these approaches have one single thing in common. They introduce coercion into the economic field, a place where coercion should be strictly and utterly prohibited. The use of force for any other purpose than to protect life, liberty, and property is coercion. It's violence, even though you don't see any blood, because the chosen victims of state coercion are usually the people who have the greatest amount of virtue. That's how they get rich. That's the general reality of it. And if there has indeed been a retreat from, uh, of governments from historic obligations, as Pearson suggests, then the failure to prevent the erosion of our rights to life, liberty, and property is that big historic obligation from which governments have retreated. You can't possibly protect life, liberty, and property if your ideology is all about redistributing the property and money of people who earned it to, to the people who didn't. Those, these things are completely contradictory. No wonder you have political dysfunction. The political dysfunction that Pearson describes as a symptom or a consequence is not a symptom or consequence. It's a cause. And then there's the issue of what Pearson called the destruction of the environment, which in the field of politics, which the social field, has become the universal code for mm, capitalism is bad. Again, we don't know by this essay if he's talking about pollution or about industrial activity, agricultural activity, uh, or any of a host of activities necessary to humanity's survival that are falsely associated with environmental destruction. There are so many very human motiva motivations behind the climate change and CO2 political frenzy, which is where we're going to turn our attention to now, that it would be challenging to document them all. But there's always one motivation that people seem to understand and relate to. We often hear this expressed in the saying, just follow the money. 
And we'll also be hearing it expressed in our next two audio bites on both sides of the bumper in this upcoming break. By the early 1990s, man-made global warming was no longer a slightly eccentric theory about climate. It was a full-blown political campaign. It was attracting media attention, and as a result, more government funding. Prior to Bush the Elder, I think the level of funding for climate and climate-related sciences was somewhere around the order of $170 million a year, which was reasonable for the size of the field. It jumped to $2 billion a year, more than a factor of 10. And, uh, yeah, that changed a lot. I mean... That's a lot of jobs. A lot of jobs. It brought a lot of new people into it who otherwise were not interested. So you developed whole cadres of people whose only interest in the field was that there was global warming. If I wanted to do research on, shall we say, the squirrels of Sussex, what I would do, and this is any time from 1990 onwards, I would write my grant application saying, I want to investigate the nut-gathering behavior of squirrels with special reference to the effects of global warming. And that way I get my money. If I forget to mention global warming, I might not get the money. There's really no question in my mind that the large amounts of money that have been fed into this particular rather small area of science have distorted the overall scientific effort. We're all competing for funds. And uh, if your field is the focus of concern, you have that much less work rationalizing why your field should be funded. Well, the good news is he has no problem with my mother's terbriscophil. Hard to believe, but go on. The bad news is he says he's getting deported. What do you mean he's getting deported? I believe it means that the U.S. government is going to expel him from the country. He could then either return to his native India, immigrate to another country that's willing to accept him, or wander the high seas as a stateless pirate. Personally, I'd choose pirate. Penny, would you mind stepping outside so we can speak to him? Oh, fine. But the man really needs to work on his girl issues. Another reason to consider a life of piracy. Even today, I understand that's an all-male profession. <laughs> okay, she's gone. Sorry, I lost my cool. <laughs> so, what's going on? Okay, here's the deal. Six months ago, my research testing the predicted composition of trans-Neptunian objects ran into a dead end. So? So, my visa's only good as long as I'm employed at the university, and when they find out I've got squat, they're going to cut me off. By the way, when I say squat, I mean diddly squat. <laughs> I wish I had squat. So, oh, wait, what have you been doing for the past six months? You know, checking email. <laughs> updating my Facebook status. Messing up Wikipedia entries. Hey, did you know Netflix lets you stream movies on your computer now? 
and you've continued to take the university's money under false pretenses? Highly unethical for an astrophysicist. Well, they're practically mandatory for a pirate. <laughs> just, just proof that Sheldon is the moral center of that show again. It's just amazing how that works out on the Big Bang Theory. Headline, London Free Press, June 9th, 2015. G7 puts climate first, leaders summit which is, of course, a euphemism for G7 puts capitalism last. And out of Germany, leaders of the world's major industrial democracies, including Prime Minister Stephen Harper, resolved, on, resolved to wean the energy-hungry economies off of carbon fuels, marking a major step in the battle against global warming that raises the chances of a UN climate deal later this year. On climate change, the G7 leaders pledged in a communique after their two-day meeting to develop long-term low-carbon strategies and abandon fossil fuels by the end of the century. We commit to doing our part to achieve a low-carbon global economy in the long term, including developing and deploying innovative technologies, striving for the trans transformation of the energy sectors, the communique read. They stopped short of agreeing to any immediate collective targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which the Europeans had pressed their partners to do. But they said a UN climate conference later this year should reach a deal with legal force, including through binding rules to combat climate change, you know, which means to combat capitalism and free markets, you know, and to push international communism to control the means of production. That's what they're talking about here, and that's what it's always been about. This has never been about climate. Green lobby groups, routinely critical of the advance economy's record on climate change, welcomed the thrust of the summit commitments. Merkel's G7 says, Auf Wiedersehen, farewell to fossil fuels. Uh, global activist network Abbas declared in a statement. You know, actually, Auf Wiedersehen, more literally translated, would mean until we see each other again which, though used as a farewell, does not imply a permanent farewell. And I think in this context, that's probably will be seen in those fossil fuels for a while and again. But in any case, you can see the whole point. Post Media Network, editorial, London Free Press, June 10th. Vague carbon targets accomplish nothing, reads the headline. Canada doesn't need to commit to more pointless environmental targets, says the editorial. Unfortunately, Prime Minister Harper has just signed Canada up for one more. Our commitment means no more coal, gas, or oil. Bye-bye oil sands and all the jobs. As the Alberta government's oil sands discovery center explains, quote, at current production rates, resources from Alberta's oil sands could supply Canada's energy needs for more than 500 years, end quote. So it's not like our oil industry is going to dry up and disappear. While 2100 might seem like a date out of science fiction, it's only 85 years away. Back in 2002, the Liberal government set Canada up for failure when it ratified the Kyoto Protocol, knowing all too well we wouldn't meet the reduction targets by 2012. Now all we hear from the eco-crowd is that this is a stain on our reputation. They're half right. What damages our reputation and that of other G7 countries is making a bunch of random commitments, and we have no way of knowing whether we can abide by them. It's just not serious governance, concludes the editorial. Boy, that's an understatement. But they do accomplish something, not just not anything related to climate or weather. They affect the climate of politics. And to the advocates of these targets, climate is, is essentially irrelevant, except as a necessary emotional distraction from the real target of destruction, and that's capitalism and free markets. And so, you know, all I'm, the message I'm getting is that we cannot trust our politicians. So 
to try and counter this, you know, I ran into something quite accidentally. I got a gift from my daughter, Danielle, this past Father's Day, and it's a book entitled Back to School for Grown-Ups, Everything You Should Have Learned in Class, published out of London, England in 2010. don't know if she's trying to tell me something, but I'll tell you, from art to science to politics, this book is just a wealth of quick information packaged in bite-sized summaries that appear to touch upon most of the essentials. Uh, You can expect to hear some more from this book in the future. But the second question in the book is one that's very pertinent to our theme of climate change today, and that question is, why have there been ice ages? This is such a valuable slice of knowledge that we should all be aware of. I thought I would share the book's answer to this question in its entirety. And so, let us begin. With all the talk of global warming, you may wonder how the Earth's temperature has varied throughout history. In fact, there have been periods when the average temperature was much higher than it is now, when hardly a trace of snow or ice could be found anywhere on the planet. And there have been times when it was much lower and great ice sheets covered much of the world. So what causes these wide fluctuations in global temperature? It may surprise you to learn that Earth is currently experiencing what is probably its fifth great ice age. Although fortunately we are in the warmer part of that ice age, a period known as an interglacial period, when the great ice caps and glacial fields have retreated, if only temporarily. Now remember that. The first person to suggest ice fields had once been much more extensive than they are now was the Swiss-German geologist Jean de Charp. Uh, Charpentier, who was working in the Alps in the early 19th century studying the origins of large scattered boulders known as erratics. At the time they were thought to be meteorites, but he realized that they were made of the same rock as the surrounding mountains and concluded they'd been moved by glaciers that had since melted. We now know he was right. Another glaciologist, a Swiss-American named uh, Louis Agassiz, not only agreed with him, but also put forward evidence to suggest that much of the globe had at one time been covered with thick ice. Scientists have since built up a very detailed picture of the planet's climatic history. In the last three billion years, there have probably been five major ice ages, the first taking place more than two billion years ago. Some 850 million years ago, an event known as Snowball Earth began, the Huronian Ice Age, a period of severe cold lasting about 220 million years in which the whole whole of the globe was covered in ice. The end of the Second Ice Age, the Cryogenian Ice Age, seems to have coincided with the evolution of a wealth of complex single-celled and multi-celled organisms, although whether there is a causal link between these events and what it might be remains a matter of debate. The third ice age, the Andean Saharan ice age, lasted from 460 to 430 million years ago. That's 30 million years. The fourth, the Karoo ice age, from 350 to 260 million years ago, and this current fifth ice age, the Pleistocene, Pleistocene ice age, started about 20 million years ago. Although human societies existed during the last glacial period, it wasn't until the temperatures began to rise that settled ways of life developed. Within a few thousand years of the start of this interglacial, the first human civilizations began to flourish in the more hospitable environment. Temperatures rise and fall throughout an ice age, producing glacial and interglacial periods. And this one reached its coldest about three million years ago. An interglacial began about 10,000 years ago, and that continues today, and that's practically yesterday. So what causes ice ages? The mechanisms that cause ice ages and determine their progress are complex, and several factors undoubtedly at work. These include fluctuations in energy output from the sun, changes in Earth's distance from the sun, and importantly, the movements of the tectonic plates. 
The positions and elevations of the world's land masses affect wind patterns and circulation of warm air over the globe, but their effect on ocean currents is even greater. It may be that the land masses have periodically cut off the circulation of currents to the poles, causing temperatures there to fall. Once ice sheets start to form, they reinforce the cooling process by increasing the reflection of the sun's energy back into space, and temperatures begin to drop. The concentration of carbon dioxide, CO2, in the atmosphere is also known to have an impact on global temperature as this reduces the radiation of energy from Earth, so it's likely that falls and rises in CO2 levels are factors in starting and ending ice ages. The movements of Earth's tectonic plates can affect carbon dioxide levels because active volcanoes release CO2. And the uplifting of mountain ranges such as the Himalayas leads to increased erosion and weather of silicate rocks, a process that tends to absorb carbon dioxide. Now, that was what they said there. Now, here's the last sentence of the explanation, the one that I'm not even sure is serious. It almost sounds tongue-in-cheek given what we actually know. Quote, we have undoubtedly played our part too, and the current trend toward global warming as a result of human activity promises to end the current ice age with a bang, end quote. Well, that's a big bang theory of a completely different kind, but of course we now know that this is not so, that, that is, that our part is simply not as great as we think it is, and I'll be getting more on the specifics of that a little later in the show. And remember, we're only talking about CO2, which is not a pollutant of any sort. And the issue of pollution is one entirely removed from this discussion. Now, the implications of this little slice of knowledge are enormous when considered against what we're hearing in the current, uh, you know, din of trying to make uh, political action to change the, pl the climate. It's just unbelievable. It certainly explains, though, why human beings have not been here for very long and civilization for an even shorter period. With ice covering the planet from pole to pole, there sure wouldn't be any pleasant summers spent on the beach in Florida, I'll tell you that. What makes the CO2 anti-capitalists seem even more bizarre is that although they occasionally use the term climate change when it's clear that global warming doesn't suit a particular situation or argument, for the most part, they're still complaining about warming and not cooling. That's most of the headlines I'm still seeing. And I would think, if anything, we would want to do with the climate, it's to warm it up, for goodness sakes. We're in the middle of an ice age that is only temporarily in an interglacial period and could return practically overnight in planetary and climate, climate terms. If the human race is going to survive, we better have plenty of energy from every economic so economical source possible, along with an ability, I think, to leave the planet, which could become a necessity sooner than we might imagine. You may recall my example on a show long past when I cited the fact that individual human beings have the capability of living, say, a 100-year lifespan, and some longer. If you put these averaged 100-year lifespans end-to-end, -end, rather than overlapping them as they do through generations, where you might get three to five generations sharing the same century, well, then it was only 20 or so lifetimes since the Roman Empire and the time of Christ, and only a 100 end-to-end lifetimes since the last ice age, when the entire continent of North America was covered with ice. Think about that. Consider the implications. Some people have. For example, the British sci-fi series Grand Star that led off our show last week was about a society that lived in the permanent cold snow and darkness, and they were running short of energy and facing the end of their existence. But at least in that imaginary world, they had technology. Imagine fending for yourself in such an, an environment. The very thought is chilling. Uh, let alone the climate being chilling. 
So let's take a moment now to listen into some climate changers, <laughs> if I call them that, namely the Canadian politicians debating in the April 12, 2011 federal election. And in this segment of the debate on climate change, which was hosted by Steve Pakin, this is the same one we played a, a couple weeks ago but had a different part, we hear the voices of Stephen Harper and the late Jack Layton. Mr. Layton well, and Mr. Ignatiou. And we've had so many instances now where the House of Commons has uh, put forward important ideas that uh, you've simply turned around and rejected. Uh, and sometimes, I'm thinking particularly of our climate change bill, for example, went through the House of Commons twice, and yet uh, you used the Senate, which you packed with your friends and defeated candidates and fundraisers, some of whom are up on fraud charges now, and you used that Senate to defeat a bill that called for accountability of no matter which party would be in power in Canada so that we could have a climate change plan that would actually move us forward. I, I, uh, it, it's such a disrespect for democracy, Mr. Harper, that, I, I, that, that, that it really isn't acceptable. Let, let me explain our position on that bill. We've been strongly opposed to that bill throughout. The reason is that bill has no actual measures to achieve objectives. It just sets targets. You can't achieve something by just setting a target. You can't just pass a bill declaring the unemployment rate to be 2%. You actually actually have to have the measures that will achieve that. When it comes to climate change, we're working internationally on the Copenhagen Accord, which now is a framework to include all emitters. That's what we saw. It. We're working with the Obama administration on a continental approach for our integrated industries. That's something the opposition asked for. And we're continuing through this budget to invest billions of dollars in green energy and energy efficiency. Mr. That's what, the, that's the, what Canadians the wanted us to do. That's what, that's what, Canadi that's what Canadians wanted ever, us to do. You've got to know where you're going. If you're ever, you've got to know where Mr. you're going Gnady, if you're ever going to get there. And that's what that bill was all about. And you don't want us to be taking strong action on climate change. I think most Canadians know that. You prefer to subsidize uh, your friends in the big oil companies. Any questions for these gentlemen? No, either kill them or put them to work. Well, fellas, what's it gonna be? You can do an honest day's work and live an extra day? Or cash in now? Whatever you think is best. Listen, I don't mind doing an honest day's work. I mean, uh, air filling the lungs, what do you say? No, I think it's a wonderful idea. Definitely is. I think you made a right decision. <laughs> Get off. Out! My instructions to you were implicit, I thought. All indigenous personnel will work today. He can't work, sir. Indeed. He's a holy man. He uh, meditates. Beyond work. Like the Sangoma. Sir? The witch doctors of my country. Were it not for their lies and petty foolishness, the beliefs they instilled over the centuries, the Zulu nation might have survived. Instead, we are slaves in our own land. Every leader of value forced into exile. Ubaba. He has a weapon. It's not a weapon, sir. It's part of his religion. If he used it against another man, he would... Uh... Lose his soul. That's what they believe. An unknown man with a weapon is unknown, except for his weapon. Today he will work. 
Tomorrow he may meditate. Yes, sir. Oh boy, that remarkable commentary on the effect of certain religions on their cultures came from a first season episode of the 1960s TV series, I Spy. In many ways, by stepping into the climate change political scam that's really about anti-capitalism, Pope Francis has placed himself squarely in the line of fire of the comments that we just heard. On this account, he is, for all intents and purposes, the world's leading witch doctor on climate. I have on past programs that dealt with differing world religions pointed to the direct connection between many religious beliefs and the poverty that they cause. There's a direct correlation. You can see it. These beliefs cause them to be slaves in their own land, as that character put it. And I have no desire to see humanity once again return to the days when they prayed to the god of thunder or any other weather gods. Reads the headline in the June 19th London Free Press, Pope doesn't mince words. Climate. Vatican Manifesto says the rich are turning earth into, quote, an immense pile of filth, end quote. Already the language fraud begins in the headline. By rich, what they really mean is the productive. And as we all know, the poor, of course, they never cause pollution or filth. Oh, boy. Vatican City, in a sweeping environmental manifesto aimed at spurring action, Pope Francis called Thursday for a bold cultural revolution to correct what he said was a structurally perverse economic system. Hmm, thought we were talking about climate, didn't you? In which the rich exploited the poor, turning earth into an immense pile of filth. Now, I'd like to ask the Pope just what the name of this perverse economic system is, you know, because he doesn't say, gee, I wonder, could it be capitalism maybe? Of course it is, even though capitalism is not the economic system we have in place. Francis framed climate change as an urgent moral crisis to address in his eagerly anticipated encyclical, blaming global warming on an unfair fossil fuel-based industrial model that harms the poor the most. Uh, You know, that statement is so bizarrely insane and, and contradictory and just plain wrong, it defies any rational response. I don't even know if I can try. Uh, The document released Thursday, quote, was a stinging indictment of big business and climate doubters and aimed to inspire courageous decisions at the UN climate negotiations. Citing scripture and his predecessors, the Pope urged people of every faith and even of no faith to undergo an awakening to save God's creation. It is not enough to balance, he said, in the medium term, the protection of nature with financial gain. Uh, He wrote, halfway measures simply delay the inevitable disaster, Put simply, it's a matter of redefining our notion of progress. Well, there's one for you. Environmental activists said the very first, the first ever encyclical or teaching document on the environment could have a dramatic effect on the climate debate, lending the moral authority of the immensely popular Francis to an issue that has been cast in purely economic and scientific terms. The, this clarion call should guide the world towards a strong and durable climate agreement, said Christina Figueres, the UN's top t- climate official. The moral imperative leaves no doubt that we must act on climate change now, she says. And I'm thinking, well, what moral imperative? Why do they never explicitly say? And the answer is because it's an immoral imperative, and any objective definition of terms would destroy that so-called imperative in a split second. Uh, and then they say, scientific data on Thursday backed up Francis's concerns. The U- U.S. National Oceo- Oceo- Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released figures showing that last month was the hottest May around the globe in 136 years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
you know, I have to say that's the first I've heard this one because every other report on the global climate I've read over the past 24 to 36 months suggests the exact opposite. But that's not even relevant to anything in this given context because we're talking morality. Remember, that was what we're talking about. And, and as soon as they state their moral case, oh, they toss in a little science just to screw, screw with you. What if the warm weather is actually being caused by the sun and the oceans? I guess that would make us all immoral, right? Because that's scientific data. That would prove the case because that's how they're thinking. Virabhadran Ramathan, if I pronounce a Ramanathan, I think, a Scripps Institution oceanography scientist who has briefed the Pope on climate issues, said the encyclical is a game changer. It's not politics anymore, he said, adding that science is often difficult to understand, but people respond to arguments framed by morality and ethics. Well, first, that it's not politics, that's not true. It's completely politics. But what is true is that people do respond to moral issues. The energy lobby, however, reads the article, was quick to criticize the encyclical's anti-fossil fuel message. The simple reality is that energy is the essential building block of the modern world, said Thomas Pyle of the Institute of Energy Research, a conservative free market group, etc. You know, I personally find the Pope's pronouncement on this issue to be outrageous. It's, out, it's offensive. It's obscene. He is the witch doctor of the 21st century. And as usual, the conservative response is one relating to economics. They're not addressing the morality. And so what are they going to, what are, what are they going to do, you know? So here the Post Media Network does a, a response, and they say climate activists, and this was in the Free Press June 15th, can we keep the faith in this climate pope? And they said uh, climate activists rail against the suffering in the third world caused by rising seas. But against that must be measured the certainty that fossil fuel energy from coal, etc., is responsible for that modern civilization. And, you know, that's basically the argument. I, and then they say a major drive of fossil fuel energy consumption is population growth. Thus we await with interest what Pope Francis will have to say on these matters. And I'm thinking, really, are they, are they saying that they don't already know what Pope Francis will say? He'll say the same thing and deliver the same anti-capitalist message that every pope in my lifetime has been doing with routine, uh, routine regularity. We've already dealt in great detail with the previous pope's anti-capitalist rants, including the one that Ayn Rand herself focused on in one of her essays back in the 60s. And if the National Post's next response to their eagerly awaited message from the pope is as shallow as this one, and I'm thinking, why bother? Talking facts is irrelevant to those who are not persuaded by facts. You must talk morality and ethics. Demonstrate why they are morally wrong and you are morally right. That's all the other side ever does. And though all of their scientific and statistical data can be found to be inconsistent, contradictory, even fabricated, the one thing the other side sticks to is its collectivist morality and ethics. Individuals are evil. The group is good. Collectivist moralities have no chance of surviving when people are made aware and of a clear alternative on a moral basis and never on a non-moral basis because then you're mixing apples and oranges and everything no longer makes any sense. I noticed earlier this week that U.S. presidential candidate Jeb Bush, who's a Catholic, had to go out of his way to distance himself from the Pope's remarks, essentially saying, you stick to religion and leave the politics to us. Well, you know, that's not enough. You have to have the courage to morally condemn someone who's morally condemning you for being virtuous and moral, at least in this context. So what can we do against this anti-capitalist onslaught? 
For starters, I would recommend a book I touched upon a few shows back called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Not just a moral case for capitalism, but for fossil fuels, written by Alex Epstein, uh, published by Penguin in 2014. On page 99 of that book, you'll see an amazing chart that demonstrates how the so-called CO2 greenhouse effect is not an issue we particularly have to worry about. And he writes, quote, While I've met thousands of students who think the greenhouse effect of CO2 is a mortal threat, I can't think of ten who can tell me what kind of effect it is. Even experts often don't know, particularly those who focus on the human impact side of things. One internationally renowned scholar I spoke to recently was telling me about how disastrous the greenhouse effect was, and I asked her what kind of function it was. She didn't know. What I told her did not give her pause, but I think it should have. As the illustration shows, and he points to this illustration, the greenhouse effect of CO2 is an extremely diminishing effect, a logarithmically decreasing effect. This means that the initial parts per million of CO2 do the vast majority of any warming of the atmosphere. The heating effect of each additional increment of CO2 is smaller and smaller. So why do we have the idea that the greenhouse effect means rapid global warming? Because the proven greenhouse effect is falsely equated with the related but speculative theory that the greenhouse effect of CO2 is dramatically amplified by other effects in the atmosphere leading to rapid warming instead of the otherwise expected decelerating warming, end quote. Now the chart in his book shows a curved line representing the greenhouse effect starting at the bottom left and then rises sharply to the period before the, pre-industri- the pre-industrial period and which then begins to flatten out as more and more CO2 is accumulated in the atmosphere. And it illustrates how the CO2 parts per million, which today is at approximately 0.04% of the atmosphere at 400 parts per million, rose dramatically during the years preceding and up to pre-industrial period, where it stood at just under 400 parts per million, and which at present rates would rise to about 600 parts per million at some time in the future. But further growth or increases of the greenhouse effect, quote-unquote, is practically negligible during the, the, the industrial period as compared to the pre-industrial period. In addition to actually including a moral case for fossil fuels, that's just one of the many technical arguments and insights offered by the book that will offer you intellectual ammunition to resist the coming onslaught of state control. And of course, I also re- recommend you tell your friends to tune into this show. Just right. We're going to turn our attention now to what sadly turned out to be another anti-capitalist, anti-individualist perspective being sold as, quote, the need to be good by the New York Times columnist David Brooks in an interview with National Post columnist Joseph Breen. And while there are some observations I can agree with and support, Brooks' conclusions, at least to the extent discussed in his interview, fall way short of the mark. But it's it's an interesting question. Do people have a need to be good? So let's begin our investigation into this issue by listening into an example of it, if you will, as expressed on none other than an episode of the Big Bang Theory. Hey, Leonard. Hey, Stuart. You busy? Um, classified, Leonard? Yeah, it's a regular Manhattan project. Tonight's my date with Penny, and since we haven't been able to connect by phone... Yeah, I'm sorry, it's been broken. Or email. Yeah, that's broken, too. Everything's broken. (laughs) Anyway, I was just wondering if you had any last-minute advice. Uh, All right, um, well, off the top of my head, you know, I think the most important thing with Penny is to go really slow. I mean, glacial. come on to her all the time so you need to like set yourself apart you know be a little shy 
Oh, don't make too much eye contact. And, you know, treat her with like cool detachment and, and, and you know, fear. Fear? Yeah, like you're afraid that if you touch her, she'll break. Well, that plays right into my wheelhouse. <laughs> good, good. Well, you, you kids have fun tonight. Thanks, Leonard. Mm -hmm. What is that thing, anyway? You don't know what this is? No. Good, get out. <laughs> Be afraid of Penny. Nice, very crafty. It wasn't bad advice, it just wasn't particularly helpful. For what it's worth, my mother says that when we deceive for personal gain, we make Jesus cry. <laughs> terrible. Maybe if you were helping, you'd feel better about yourself. I deliberately tried to sabotage Stuart's date with Penny. Of course you feel terrible. You completely screwed up your karma, dude. You don't really believe in that superstition, do you? It's not superstition. It's practically Newtonian. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Leonard pretends to be a friend and acts like a two-faced bitch. <laughs> Therefore, he's reborn as a banana slug. It's actually a very elegant system. You know, what goes around comes around. Speaking of what goes around comes around. <laughs> I saw this article in the uh, National Post on April 18th, and it was headed, The Need to Be Good. And it was about why the pursuit of celebrity and wealth doesn't make people happy. And it was really an interview between uh, National Post reporter Joseph Breen and David Brooks on his book, The Road to Character in which he highlights his idea that character is stifled by modern culture. And um, he said, and I quote, John Stuart Mill has a phrase, we all have a moral responsibility to be better every day, and I think we're born with an ambition to be better. Everybody I, now, I know doesn't only want to be rich and famous, they want to be good. Even mass murderers, if you ask them, why did you do it? They've invented some sort of rationalization. It seems to be built in our, into our nature, he says. And he says how he had a natural ambition to be a better person. And he said, in part, I'd achieved um, way more career success than I ever imagined I would and found the elemental truth that it doesn't make me happy. It wasn't like my life was falling to pieces. It was fine, better than fine in some ways, but it was insufficient. It wasn't yielding a deep tranquility that I saw in other people. It struck me that the people who seemed most tranquil and most at peace and most admiral were also the most humble, most aware of their weaknesses. And the people who we associate with self-confidence sometimes are fragile. They're narcissists. They're egotists. They're always doing stupid things like combing over their hair to cover their bald spot. It's a perversity or at least a paradox that the people who I think of as really peaceful and tranquil emphasize their weaknesses. Wisdom is really understanding your own tendency to error and counteracting it, he says, just like virtue is understanding your own tendency to sin and trying to avoid it. Sounds like the argument from depravity to me. But here's an interesting thing he says. He says, I'm a strong cultural determinist. I think there are certain standards that people have, and that's what determines our behavior. In a lot of ways, culture is way better than it was in the 1940s and 50s. We're less racist, less sexist, and so on. 
Uh, I don't know if that's true. Uh, just look at what happened with Obama in the last past week and how race con con continues to consume the American mindset in particular. But he continues. He says, in this one realm of humility, they understood one thing that we've forgotten. And he says, two things occurred to me. I assumed character was this thing you had inside, this iron figure of willpower. So if you worked hard and did your self-controlled push-ups, you'd develop a strong character. But then I came to understand that none of us is strong enough to control ourselves against self-deception, self-indulgence, self-centeredness. And character is really not found inside. It's actually found in the strength of your commitments to others. It's found communally. It's relational. And he, and he goes on. He talks about the humility ethos and how it went away and it needs to be returned. And... Um, how our technology, and he says, all our technology and competitive capitalism encourage us to be, get more into self-worship, self-adoration, and self-exposure. You know, there you, there you go. You have to take that shot against capitalism. He says, but I think if you do that, you find yourself feeling hollow inside. We better rediscover an older moral tradition that is not about self-promotion or career or external life at all. And uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, talk about contradicting his own views that character is found in a commitment to others because others are an external to the self and so <laughs> any commitment to them would constitute an external life wouldn't it and he says this really started out as a book on neuroscience and cognitive humility and it evolved into a book on moral humility the key to living well is understanding the biases and bugs in your soul and your selfishness and your self-centeredness well some basic observations I had on this was Though Brooks treats each term the same, selfishness and self-centeredness are not necessarily the same thing and can occasionally be opposites. The first is a virtue, the second merely a misdirected focus, which may or may not result in harm to others or oneself. You can be selfish and be outwardly directed, and self-centeredness, on the other hand, suggests no outward focus or concern with the world outside the self. And the ambition to be better is completely about selfishness because being better can only relate to the self. I don't think you'll find any character inside anywhere if you don't first understand what character is. And if character is completely a matter of one's commitment to others, then I suppose a person living alone on an island could never have character. I would suggest that it would take more character to live alone on an island than it ever does in a social setting where you can depend on other people's characters. And finally, er, 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 there's no such thing as taking a good thing too far. If it's good, there's no justification for doing the opposite, you know, doing bad just to have a balance in one's life. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, when it comes to capitalism, suddenly it does make sense for a lot of people. So to wrap up, I think it's just another distraction to say that people need to be good, a distraction that avoids the fact that being good and needing to be good are two different things. David Brooks' argument implies that the need alone is sufficient and will ultimately guide people to a good path based on a combination of their need to be good with cultural determinism. And determinism in the social realm implies a lack of free will, since, quote, goodness is built into our natures, end quote, as he expressed it. And therefore, we have nothing to worry about, right? Wrong. <laughs> in the context of this discussion, the need for goodness needs to be distinguished from the pursuit of happiness and from moral judgment, especially given how perceived desire for goodness has often led people to make immoral decisions or, or lead them to immoral behaviors. The key to living well is behaving well. How to be good is something that must be learned, starting with a definition of what is good 
And that's about all adopting, you know, some form of rational philosophy, not about being humble. Humility can be both a virtue or a vice. Some people express a false humility when it's clearly not called for or even inappropriate at a time when strength is called for or leadership, etc. The need to be good should, of course, not be confused with the knowledge to be moral. These are two entirely different things. The need is psychological and related to self-esteem, whether you've earned it or not. And character? Well, that's about values, and values have to be learned and understood to be acted upon. Morality is a systematic code of values that one requires in order to survive and to achieve goals in life. It's about having the ability and knowledge to choose between right and wrong. To consent, and that's as social as it gets. Consent is social, coercion is antisocial. Choosing what is right and never resorting to coercion, force, or violence to get something for nothing is the good. So between now and next week, when we return, be good and join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Morning. Morning. What's up? Nothing. We just pulled an all-nighter trying to fix a zero-gravity pasta maker. <laughs> mm. I'm gonna make a coffee run. Do you want me? Oh, no thanks. I have coffee. Great. So how'd it go with Stuart last night? <laughs> oh, I really don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Right. Sure. But you know, the thing is, uh, before you guys went out, I spoke to him and I... I said I don't want to talk about it. Okay, I just, I kind of feel... Look, Leonard, what goes on between me and Stuart is none of your business, so just leave it alone, okay? If you really want to clean up your karma, go get my freaking latte. (laughs) 